If you would, stay standing, and if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 this morning. And today we'll look at just one story, one scene, starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke. And rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's God's word for us today. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this Jesus, this Jesus who is stronger than the sea. Lord, we thank you for the rest that we have in him, the comfort that is ours. We thank you for his protection. We thank you for his salvation. We confess that he died in our place and was raised in the third day and that that is our only hope. And we pray that that hope would spread here today. We pray for those who would hear this story we just read and say with the the disciples, at least at this point in time, who is this? We pray today they would come to see and believe. They would embrace him and receive his mercy and join us in worship and following this Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, if you've been with us in recent weeks in our study of gospel according to Mark, you'll likely remember that Mark's account is unique for its quick pace. Its quick pace. He uses the word immediately, quite frequently. Everything happens immediately in Mark. Most sentences begin with the word and, especially in the Greek text, in order to keep things moving at a galloping pace. Stories in Mark are told with much more brevity than the same stories in Matthew in Luke, in most cases. So because of that quick pace and that short storytelling, it's good for us to occasionally zoom out to see what Mark is doing from story to story and scene to scene, especially like this week when we're only looking at one of them. So let's zoom out before we zoom back in on this passage at the end of chapter 4. Let's remind ourselves of where we've been in the last couple of messages. We've seen several related parables in chapter 4 before verse 35. Parables about hearing and seeing and receiving the kingdom. Keep hearing, keep seeing, Jesus insists the disciples must do. Now here's where we're going over the next few messages. From verse 35 of chapter 4 into chapter 5, there are four related miracles. 
We had parables before, now related miracles. There's Jesus' power over disaster, which we just read, chapter 4, verse 35. And then starting in chapter 5, verse 1, you just look down in your Bible without, without really even reading the text, just seeing headings, headlines. There you see Jesus' power over demons. Demons. And then by verse 21, he's talking about and showing his power over disease. And then by verse 35, we have another scene which shows us Jesus' power over death. It culminates in his power over death. Jesus has power over disaster, demons, disease, and death. Four different kinds of problems. One solution. Jesus. So in light of the parables, which came before in Mark 4, which talk about hearing and seeing and perceiving and receiving... The questions that we take into these miracles here in chapter 4 and 5 are these. Those around Jesus, will they see? Will they perceive? Will they receive? Will they get it? As Jesus shows more and explains more of himself and his mission. And what we'll see in each case is that a nagging question still remains. Nagging questions oftentimes still remain for everyone around Jesus. Who is this man? And what does it mean that he just did that or this? So that's something of an overview of where we've been and where we're going. Something of a heads up on the recurring themes and questions that will occupy our attention in the weeks ahead. So let's zoom back in now. Zoom back into the scene at the end of chapter 4. Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. It's here that we see Jesus' power over disaster. Verse 35 tells us that after a day of teaching, evening came, and Jesus said to his men, let us go across to the other side. That is, the other side of the lake, called the Sea of Galilee. We're not told here why Jesus decided to cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But over the next four chapters, we'll see him go back and forth four times. And eventually it'll be clear that going to the left, there are Gentiles. Going back to the right, those are Jews. And so we see his Gentile ministry in, in upcoming weeks in chapter 5. That's why Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee. But here in chapter 4, it just says, let's cross over, and so they do. Now, it's important to know some situational dynamics before we get too deep into this story. As you know, Jesus is traveling with professional fishermen. Some of these men call the shores of Galilee their home. This is their home fishing turf. They're familiar with these waters, and they're quite capable of handling themselves in a boat. Nevertheless, a trip all the way across the lake wouldn't have been a small task. It's not what they're used to. You don't normally cross all the way to go fishing. You go a little ways out, then you come back. It's eight miles across. That's not the same as Lake Michigan, but it's still a ways in a boat with oars and small sails. We actually have a pretty good idea of what the boat may have looked like or been like. In 1986, a boat was excavated from the Sea of Galilee, 
It looks like this. After sitting in a, an acid bath or something to get all the stuff off it for seven years, this is what they found. And they date it right around the time of Jesus. In fact, it's even nicknamed the Jesus Boat. You can Google it. It would be like the kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples were, were traveling in. It was 27 feet long, seven and a half feet wide. No doubt it had more on top than what you see there, but, but you can tell it's, it's not a large boat. And you should also know this, that the Sea of Galilee sits in a basin, uh, a bowl with mountains around it, and so storms whip up quickly there. They still do even today. And of course, as you know, because we've already read the story here at the end of chapter 4, that's exactly what happens. A storm whips up. That's the first of four different turns in the story. Four turns in the story. The first, a bad storm and a good snooze. A bad storm and a good snooze. Let's start with the bad storm. Notice the language in verse 37. Rich with imagery. A great windstorm arose. It arose. It came out of nowhere. And the waves were breaking into the boat. Not barely cresting over and, and, and filling the boat, but, but breaking into the boat. And the boat was already filling. It's happening fast. It's a violent scene. It's a dire situation. This is no doubt one of those infamous Galilean storms that came out of nowhere. And what a contrast we read of next. Jesus was asleep. Jesus was asleep on a cushion, no less. I mean, not reclining with his head back, it's going to hurt, but, but he really went for it. He got a pillow. He said, I'm going to do this thing. Like, you know, there are those naps where you, you, you shut your eyes for a little bit. You doze off maybe. But, but then there are those other ones where you get under the covers. You're going to be there a while. Jesus got a pillow. And he slept. Why did Jesus sleep? Why did Jesus sleep? Well, think of why you sleep. I'm not asking you whether you think you could sleep in a small boat in a storm. Just think about why you sleep. You sleep when you're tired. You sleep because you need it. You're tired because you're human. And Jesus was tired. Jesus was human. Let's not overlook that. Jesus was a real human being who needed sleep. He got hungry. He felt pain. He had physical limitations. He often needed to get away and rest a while, he said. The crowds have been wearisome, no doubt. Back in chapter 3, he couldn't even eat his meal at his house because the crowds were pressing in. There's the whole teaching and preaching thing that's tiring. Yes, it's what Jesus came to do, and I'm sure he's fulfilled when he's teaching and preaching, but he's still a human being, and preaching and teaching is no doubt wearying. It would have been just as much for Jesus as any earnest preacher, maybe even more. He sleeps because he needs to. He's fully human. You know that, right? He's not pretending to be human. He's not faking it when he says, I'm hungry or I thirst. And Hebrews 4 tells us that that should be encouraging to us because he's aware of our weaknesses and he's sympathetic. He slept. But even more, Jesus 
was a perfect human being. He wasn't just a real human being. He was the perfect human being. He slept in a storm, which probably none of us could have done. Sleep in Scripture is often a symbol of or even proof of trust and confidence in God. Let me just remind you of some of the the passages that tell us this. Like Psalm 3, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me. Or in the next psalm, Psalm 4, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. How? Why? Well, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Or Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3 says, If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror. Sleep is a symbol or even proof of confidence in God. It's the opposite of anxious toil, according to Psalm 127. That's how Jesus sleeps. He trusts God. And also, we can go one step further. Jesus can sleep because he was a divine human being. He wasn't just real. He wasn't just a perfect human being. He was a divine human being. He slept in a storm because a storm is really no big deal for him. It's really no threat to him. He is not just some sort of Jack Bauer type who's pretty darn good of getting out of a pickle 98% of the time. He rules the waves and the sea. He rules nature. He can do whatever he wants, as we'll, as we'll talk about some more in just a bit. So here he is. He's in a bad storm, and he's having a good snooze. Secondly, there's a grave concern and a dumb question. A grave concern and a dumb question. We've already seen something of the grave concern in verse 37. A great windstorm arose. The waves were breaking into the boat. The boat was already filling. It's so bad that the disciples are convinced this is it. They're convinced they are perishing. Have you ever been there? Have you ever thought, this is it, this is when I go, this is how it's going to happen? Maybe someone broke into your house, maybe you were held at gunpoint. Maybe it was a car accident. Maybe it was a surgery that went awry. Maybe it was something related to nature. Have you ever been there where you think this is it? We're going to die. It dawned on me this week that living in Albuquerque may put us in a slight disadvantage when coming to this passage. Because we enjoy 330 days of sunshine a year. We have very mild and pleasant weather here. We don't have hurricanes like they do uh, on the Atlantic coast or in the Gulf Coast. We don't get life-threatening dumps of snow like they do up north. We don't get tornadoes like they do in the middle of the country. We don't get dangerous flooding like they often have in the Midwest. Most of us didn't grow up in a fishing community in the North Atlantic. So most of us have never been in a boat, in the ocean, in a squall with 20-foot or 25 or 30-foot waves. Heck, we don't even get earthquakes here, so we can't even relate to that like our friends in California have. Most of the world knows better than Albuquerqueans what it means to, to experience the threat of death in nature. 
And certainly the disciples did. They are reminded more often than we are about their powerless over nature. They were well acquainted with the surprise of the sea, with the surprise of storms, with the power of the sea, and with the imminent threat that nature can bring. Most of us today panic if we accidentally leave the house without our cell phones. Have you had that feeling recently? Have you done that? Just, if you haven't tried that recently, do that little experiment. You'll wonder what we did before these cell phones. I mean, what if I get in an accident? I better go home right now. <laughs> get my cell phone. Well, not these fishermen. They don't have those worries like we do. They are fishermen from the Sea of Galilee, and no doubt they've been through many storms before. And yet, this particular storm in Mark 4 must have been unusually threatening. They seem unusually surprised and terrified. They think they're perishing. And then there's Jesus at the back of the boat, asleep. Asleep. Someone must have started the conversation. What's he doing? We've got to wake him up. Someone go wake him up. Peter, you do it. You're always going first. Right? It looks like they all win, according to the text. Verse 38, it says, they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, that's a dumb question. That's a dumb question, isn't it? It's dumb because they should know better. Jesus has just taught them that very day to hear and keep hearing, to see and keep seeing, keep bearing fruit. He had just told them that day, some will have tribulation come and they'll fall away. They had seen countless healings. They'd watched Jesus hurl demons out of people. They've witnessed him forgiving sins. They had seen him care for those who are perishing. They had seen him care for those who are perishing again and again. And they say here, don't you care that we are perishing? It's an accusatory kind of tone here. This question, it's not an honest question. Especially in the Greek, you can tell this. It's a rhetorical one, implying that he must not care. They're not waking him up to calm the storm. That's obvious by the fact that they're surprised when he does. They're waking him up likely to complain. Or maybe, at best, just so that he'll start to pitch in with bailing water. It's a dumb question from our vantage point. But be assured, none of us would have done any better. Had we been in their shoes, none of us would have done any better. Let's try to be sympathetic here. They were in the process of perishing. It's not that they were mistaken or being overly dramatic. They were in the process of perishing. And Jesus was sleeping. He wasn't solving the problem and they didn't know. He was sleeping. It sure looked like he didn't care. It looked like he didn't care about them or even himself. But things are not always as they seem. Things are not always as they seem. With the eyes of rationality, their question, or really their protest, is perfectly reasonable and logical. Only with the eyes of faith could they see that the unthinkable and the impossible 
was happening. This, that Jesus was caring for them by sleeping. He was caring for them by sleeping. Hold on to that. I'll come back to it. You know, up until this point, things have gone swimmingly well for these disciples who decided to follow Jesus. This whole thing of following him has gone really well. I mean, just read chapters 1 through 4 later today and remind yourself of all that's happened. It's really gone from good to great. Everywhere Jesus goes, he heals. He casts out demons. Everyone's celebrating. The crowds, well, crowds are a little bit of a nuisance, but, but if you're the disciples, you've got to kind of like it a little, right? I mean, it's like you're in a new rock band and you just made it big and everyone wants to be around you. And so, nuisance, yes, but interesting, sure. Everything seems so optimistic. There are some religious leaders who are upset with Jesus, but the disciples probably don't know that yet. They don't know there's already a plot brewing to destroy him. They just have seen the religious leaders ask some tough theological questions. I imagine they get into the boat that day very optimistic about the future, about life. I wonder if they thought stormy days were all gone. Many still do today when they start to follow Jesus. Many think stormy days won't happen anymore. Sadly, many would-be Christians have been told by a well-meaning but mistaken Christian that with Jesus, everything is better. With Jesus, all gets fixed. With Jesus, the void in your heart is completely filled. There are no more storms with Jesus. Many well-meaning preachers have preached this very passage in that sort of way. If Jesus is in your boat, he will calm the storms of your life. Is Jesus in your boat? It preaches well, doesn't it? But we should all notice very carefully here that it was Jesus who led them into the storm. Jesus led them into the storm. This is no accident. Jesus is the one who said, get a boat ready, and we're going eight miles that way. Jesus knows the weather better than your weatherman does. He knows what's to come. It's all part of a plan. Do you have a theology with a God who leads his people into storms in order to reveal more about themselves to themselves, to them, and to reveal more of himself to them? Jesus is revealing himself here in the storm and in his sleep and in what he does next. So thirdly, a powerful rebuke and an immediate reversal. A powerful rebuke and an immediate reversal in verse 39. Remember, the disciples have just woken Jesus up. They asked him that rhetorical accusatory question, don't you care that we perish? And then Jesus gives a mighty rebuke, but not to the disciples. You'd expect that, right? Not to the disciples. Instead, he rebukes the wind and the sea. He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. That word rebuke here is the same word that is used of Jesus when he exercises a demon out of someone. He rebukes the demon and says, come out. Here. Jesus rebukes the sea. He gags the sea. He shuts up the sea. 
That doesn't mean the sea is demon-possessed. No, but there's something interesting about the fact that the same word is used for Jesus pulling a demon out of a guy and calming the storm. The rebuke has added to it this double command, peace, be still. And don't hear those three words in gentle tones. Don't think Jesus must have whispered it. The words peace and still sound gentle, but that's the result. The means is Jesus speaking these things with creation power, omnipotent, divine power, ex nihilo, out of nothing, creation power. It's a divine command over nature. It's like in the beginning. Psalm 33 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That's what Jesus is doing here. With a word or two, he, he speaks peace and stillness. And in an instant, it was so. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. An instant, an immediate reversal. The fact that the wind ceased, of course, is miraculous. But we've all seen wind come and go, haven't we? Uh, we've seen storms move in, move out. We've seen at least videos of tornadoes getting sucked back up into the sky almost in an instant. What's shocking here is that the waves are stilled instantly. That would have been the shocking thing for these disciples. Have you ever seen big waves flatten out like glass in an instant? Well, I guarantee you have not. Jesus could have said, storm, cease. And then the inertia of these big waves slowly faded into a calm. And the disciples slowly got, got calmed down and... That's how it went. No, it didn't happen that way, did it? It could have happened that way, but Jesus immediately produced a great calm. That's funny to me that the word great is in front of calm. It seems like calm is calm. A great calm. But notice in verse 37, there was a great windstorm. And then a great calm. Equally great. By the way, there's another story in the Bible where a sea went from a deadly torrent to an instant calm. Do you know which one? Does this story remind you of any Old Testament story? Jonah. There are a lot of similarities, some differences too. In Jonah 1, we read this. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The similarities are obvious, aren't they? There's a ship in a tempest. Sailors who are terrified, 
a prophet sleeping in the storm, sailors who wake him because they can't believe that he's sleeping and maybe he can do something. But there are also several important differences between the Jonah story and the Jesus in the boat story. Jonah was on the run from God, but Jesus was perfectly in God's will as he slept there in the boat. Jonah likely slept to ignore his guilt, even to ignore his God. Jesus slept because he had no guilt and because he trusted in God. Jonah was awakened by the sailors so that he would pray to God and ask for help. Jesus was awakened, but he didn't need to pray, at least in this instance, because he is God. The sea was stilled in the Jonah story, if we read on later on. It's stilled when the sailors throw Jonah overboard, right? But Jesus merely throws out a word, and the sea is stilled. So no surprise then that Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew 12, something greater than Jonah is here. Indeed it is, it's he. Will the disciples see it? Well, fourthly, we see a gentle question and a surprising conclusion. A gentle question and a surprising conclusion. Jesus asks them this gentle question, verse 40. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? I read it that way on purpose, because that's probably how you read it. Not gentle. Why are you so afraid? <sighs> have you no faith at all? How long do I have to be with you people? That kind of thing. It's tempting to hear that as a rebuke, but I think it's remarkably gentle. Remember, it was the storm in the sea that Jesus rebuked. And that word is not used here for him addressing the disciples. He asked them a question. Yes, there's definitely a correction in his questions. There's definitely an exhortation implied. Don't be afraid. Instead, believe. But it's a gentle confrontation. It's also an instruction. These questions are meant to instruct. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Fear and faith. He's teaching that there's a relationship between them, an inversive relationship. You see, they are afraid, and it's because they didn't have faith. And if they had faith, that is, they fully knew who this was who was with them in the boat, then fear would be irrational. Fear would be almost impossible. But instead, there's a surprising conclusion Verse 41, they were filled with great fear. Literally, they feared a great fear. Remember in verse 37, there was a great windstorm. That word used great. And then a great calm. And how do you respond? Moving from a great windstorm to a great calm. Great fear? That's what it says. Great fear, verse 41. It seems implied that they were more afraid after the calm than they were before. Of course, what's scarier? Violent waves or the person who's stronger than violent waves? Violent waves or the Lord of those waves? 
There's a whole lot in the Bible about God's power over storms and sea. You see, in Bible times, before nuclear bombs and other military things, the sea and storms was some of the most powerful stuff that's out there. Even today, a hurricane has way more power than many, many, many nuclear bombs. And so, especially back then, the sea was the biggest, scariest, most uncontrollable thing out there. And so it was a frequent go-to when you wanted to describe God's power. You showed him stronger than the sea, than the waves, than the storm. Like in Psalm 65. O oh God, our salvation, who stills the roaring seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples. Or Psalm 89. O oh Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O oh Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Or a little bit longer one is Psalm 107 which also describes the fear that fishermen and travelers would have as they journeyed in, in these seas, and also God's sovereignty over it. It says there, some went down into the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves. They mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. God chose his power over the sea. Will the disciples see the obvious connection? Will they see what Jesus is preaching in his actions? This is almost like a, a parable of Jesus' divinity. Will they see that this man is divine? Or to put the question differently, what kind of fear do they have? Is their fear the kind of godly, awe, worshipful fear that every saint should have at any time? Or is their fear one of dread and conundrum and bewilderment? I think it's the latter. This isn't good fear. They have moved a step closer to understanding who this man is. They surely haven't seen what he's come to do. And they can only put it in question form at this point. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Of course, we know who this is. Mark's been telling us. He told us in chapter 1, verse 1, this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He recorded for us the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism. You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. He recorded for us the testimony of a demon who fell down before Jesus and said, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark recorded for us that this Jesus can forgive sins, something that only God can do because sin is ultimately against God. We've read of Jesus' claim that he is Lord of the Sabbath, the boss of it. And that Sabbath's been around since the beginning. 
And we've seen, we've seen in chapter 3 another demon fall down before Jesus and cry out, You are the Son of God. And then Jesus gagged him. So who is he? Well, he's the promised one of the Old Testament. He's the seed of the woman. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. He's the answer. He is son of God, son of man, God himself, God in the flesh, fully God and fully human. He will be betrayed. We've been told that already too. Religious leaders are already seeking to destroy him, they say. The crowd likes him, but doesn't yet get him. The disciples follow him, and they have curiosity and a lot of questions. But they don't yet see. They don't yet have faith, and so they fear. And they have no idea of the storm that's still ahead as the story rolls downward toward the betrayal and the prosecution, and the crucifixion. Jesus said to these men, follow me. They followed him into the boat. They followed him into a storm. They're following a master who isn't walking toward lilies. He's walking into a storm. Even after this one in chapter 4. And he is the only one who can still the storm. He's the only one who can still the storm of God's judgment that is coming. That's what the cross is all about. But he must bear it. He must do it. He's the only one. That becomes painfully ironic and obvious when in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night of his betrayal and arrest, Jesus is the one who will soon perish and the disciples are sleeping. They're sleeping. It's a reversal of what we see in Mark 4. In Mark 4, the disciples said to the sleepy Jesus, Do you not care that we perish? And he slept because he trusted God. He slept because he's God and he can sleep and he's showing them who he is. But in Mark 4, Jesus will soon perish. And he says to his sleepy friends, Can you not watch and pray for me? Three times he goes to them with the same question, and it proves the point with painful irony that he must go it alone. They follow him, but he will go to the cross alone. He came not to be served. He came not to co-serve. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom, a payment, a sacrifice, a transfer. Our sin for his righteousness. Our debt for his glory. Do you know that Savior? Do you have that forgiveness? Do you get the cross? Do you know who this is? Do you know what he came to do? If not, keep coming to a church like this. Keep reading the Bible. Keep praying. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Find a Christian friend, me, if you don't have one. Find a good Christian friend and start asking them a lot of questions about the Bible and this Jesus. Let us know how we can help even today. Christian, in Jesus, we have one who can not only rescue us from real or providential stor or, uh, proverbial storms, 
He can. He sometimes does. We also have a Jesus, though, who is faithful in the midst of storms, who is so able he can sleep in the middle of a storm and still take care of business. We not only have one who has and can weather his own storm, and we not only have someone who can weather the storm of the Father's wrath for our forgiveness and bring us to himself in heaven. Oh, that's true, and it's glorious. But there's actually still something more going on here. This story hints at something more cosmic and eternal than that. Jesus is bringing calm to this chaotic world. He's bringing calm to this chaotic world. You see, in Old Testament theology, Old Testament thinking, Jewish thinking, the sea isn't just threatening and big and uncontrollable. It symbolizes chaos, disorder, brokenness, the fall, the curse, and even evil. Oh, we don't have time to look at the verses that would show this, but it's all over the place. You see it in Job. You see it in the Psalms. The sea is the place of disorder, chaos, trouble, threat, surprise. And that's why this story in Mark 4 isn't just about Jesus' power over nature or even his divinity, but it's about his power over disaster pointing ahead to what's to come. He will bring calm to chaos. And that's why Revelation tells us that the story ends. And it puts it in these terms. Revelation 21, verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the sea was no more. You might think, what's God, God against seas? Why no seas? Well, it's a symbol, right? You've got to read the whole Bible and, and, and see that sea means threat, trouble, chaos, disorder, curse. In the new heaven and the new earth, the sea will be no more. And Jesus was giving the disciples and us a hint of Revelation 21, verse 1, that day on the Sea of Galilee. That's what's coming, Christian. No more threat, no more chaos, no more disorder, no more surprise, no more death, no more evil, no more curse. So Christian, what are you afraid of? Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Don't you know who he is? Don't you know that he came? Don't you remember what he said? Have you forgotten what he promised? Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Whatever your worry is today, whatever your worries are, some big, some little, I'm sure many, doesn't this story, doesn't this Jesus speak powerfully to your worries and doubts and fears? Are you not gently confronted by the Savior again today? Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? Have you forgotten? Preach this to yourself. Preach this to all your doubts and fears. We have no reason to fear. Jesus is with us. God is our refuge and strength. 
a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, we will not fear. Even if the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, even if its waters roar and foam and the mountain quakes with its swelling, we will not fear. Because there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. But he utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray for faith. We pray, Lord, that faith would abound here in this room. For those of us, for those here who haven't yet come to know who this is, perhaps a first step with them would be them just quaking, just trembling before this one who can calm the storms, this one who is God. We pray it wouldn't stop there with just fear and dread and and confusion, but, but they would see Jesus as a strong and compassionate Savior, a patient one, a kind one. We pray they would, in faith, flee to him, believe what he has said, trust him for his grace, and have no fear, no fear of death, no fear of threat, no fear of themselves, no fear of the unknown. We pray every Christian in here, Lord, to be strengthened in their faith and strengthened in their love for Jesus, strengthened in their thankfulness for him who died in our place and was raised on the third day, this one who's defeated curse, the curse, who rules creation and will bring things to their completion. We thank you for his calm, his peace, Pray now you'd help us to be still and know that he is God as we praise him as the king of creation. Amen.